0: This is the Rebellious Wellness Over 50 podcast for women over 50 who aren't done yet. You may have seen the worst of aging and are hoping there's a better way. There is, and I'm going to show you how. In interviews, book reviews, rants, and stories, each week, I'm going to bring you the latest science-based info on how to age better. I'm Gregory Ann Cox, and I believe it's time to bust the myth that aging equals decline in every area of life. It pisses me off, and it's BS. Look, aging happens, but it doesn't have to ruin your life. You just need to get a little rebellious in your approach. Welcome, everybody. My guest today is a very special guest and a very important guest for our times, full of COVID, Dr. Bob Bollinger from Johns Hopkins University. Thank you so much, Dr. Bob, for being with us today.
1: Thanks, Gregory. Nice to be here.
0: Thanks, so your CV is very extensive. I asked you for a bio, and I think the one you sent me runs five or so pages, everything from doctor of medicine, internal medicine, public health, fellowship in infectious diseases, and on and on. And I know you've been involved in international public health, everything from malaria, tuberculosis, HIV, AIDS, so many infectious diseases, even resistant antibiotics. And here we are, 2021, you're at Johns Hopkins, you're an educator, you're still practicing medicine with COVID patients and other things. How did everything in your background prepare you for this moment? And how did you get to this moment? Why India?
1: Why India? Because that's where I started in infectious diseases in uh, 1979, a long time ago. Sort of my gap year between uh, college and medical school, I took time off and I traveled to India. An opportunity to work with a group doing leprosy work. And so I got hooked on tropical diseases, infectious diseases, public health during that experience. Came back, went to medical school up at Dartmouth. I grew up in Baltimore, moved back to Baltimore to do my residency in internal medicine at the University of Maryland, and then uh, eventually made it over to Hopkins, did my master's in public health and infectious disease fellowship there. And so I've been at Hopkins on the faculty as an infectious disease clinician and now a professor of medicine and public health and nursing, well, since 1990, early 1990s. So, when I had an opportunity back in 1991 to go back to India to start doing some HIV work, I jumped at the chance because I'd been there before and loved India and enjoyed the the work. So, I started working on HIV projects back in, in the early 90s in India. And then sort of leverage that to expand our work. We've been working there ever since and um, working not just on HIV, but tuberculosis and maternal and child health and other infectious diseases. And then, of course, a year ago when we could see COVID coming, we anticipated it was going to be an issue. And so we put into place some, some projects to begin to look at COVID in India. But, you know, when it hit us, uh, you know, as an infectious disease person, you know, I think all of us, you know, in this business, have been talking about the risk of a global pandemic for a long time. This is this was not unexpected in that sense. We've been predicting it. We'd had two other SARS type uh, out- outbreaks even before this one. I think most of us thought it was going to be another influenza epidemic. And I think when this thing hit, it took us all a little bit by surprise. But it was spreading really fast in January. So I started working in late January, early February at Hopkins, trying to help Hopkins prepare because we could tell it's coming. It was hitting Italy and moving its way into New York, and we knew it was just an, an inevitable. So uh, I was working primarily on trying to get Hopkins prepared. And to some extent in India, I was sharing our lessons learned as things came in and we started seeing patients. We started creating guidelines and, and, and education materials for ourselves. And so i started sharing a lot of that with my friends in india i think that's where we started we've come we've had quite a journey since then i think both here and there and 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 around the world so i guess um you know you know as an infectious disease person this is what you this is what i'm what i do i think the there have been a lot of things that are surprising or challenging about this i think even as an infectious disease person and somebody in public health for many decades i'm I guess I was surprised, still surprised, at how poorly in the United States we managed this. And I was also surprised by how devastating, from a clinician's point of view, having cared for COVID patients, how, how just unusual and devastating this is for families, for patients, for the community. As somebody who worked in HIV and AIDS for a long time, I'm, you know, we're all used to tragedy. We're used to, unfortunately, helping families deal with and patients deal with illness. You know, this has been a very unique challenge, I think, and something we haven't seen for over 100, for 102 years since the Spanish flu. And so there's a lot of new, new learning that has to go along with that, even with a lot of experience, infectious diseases and public health, there's a lot of um, new things we've learned. That's uh, some, some hard lessons, I think, as well.
0: Yeah. Do you think... According to the news, the media is all I have to go on, that the Obama administration left a playbook for a pandemic. Do you think had that playbook been used, would it have made a difference in the number of COVID cases we see?
1: If we had done a lot of things differently, we could have seen a reduction in the number of cases. It's not just a playbook. I mean, these, the playbook is really pretty straightforward public health measures. And, and one of the most important things is communication and consistent communication and fact-based communication, and we didn't do that very well, certainly not on a federal level. That clearly, I think, had an impact on, on what we're seeing now. People who are distrustful of what they hear from the government, distrustful of science, not believing in, in what they're hearing on the, uh, you know, about from people like Tony Fauci and others, it just created confusion and, and I think contributed to what we're seeing now. There's certainly a lot of other countries that did a better job than we did.
0: Yeah, we were reading this morning, my husband and I, about the number, the percentage of people who have been vaccinated in the country like Israel, I think has done the best job, maybe 25% or more of their people, actually much more than that. And then you get down to America and we're really just inching up in the percentage of people. So, in one sense, I guess what I'm saying is we've had more infections because of the way things were handled, and now trying to roll out these vaccinations seems like we have less people getting vaccinated also because of some either a lack of communication or because we're 50 states and every state has its own way? I, I don't know. It seems it's confusing to me and the people that I speak to. So do you hear this? Is the public just throwing up their hands going, why are we so poorly administering this?
1: Well, I think both the epidemic challenges and the vaccine challenges have, are reflecting um, a number of challenges for us. I mean, one of them as a country, as you said, we're diverse, we're big. But there's other big countries that have done a better job than we have, of course. We have not invested in public health, basic public health for a long time, not sufficiently. So when we needed to do contact tracing, when we needed to roll out testing early on, when we needed to roll out community health prevention strategies. We didn't have the, the people and the infrastructure and the resources in place to really address it like a lot of other countries have. And we're seeing the same thing with the vaccine rollout, right? I mean, a, we, we don't have yet enough vaccines, but even the vaccines we have, we're having trouble delivering them because we don't have a public health infrastructure We're relying on the, the existing public-private partnerships. Countries like Israel, for example, rolling out from a public health point of view, you know, big programs fairly fast because they've invested in, in public health infrastructure and personnel in ways we haven't. Mm-hmm. Same with Taiwan, same with Korea. You know, you've seen places that have had a better... Outcome than we have, and I think those are the same places that are going to be enrolling rolling out vaccination. I, you know, another example is India. I mean, of all places in the world, India is going to do a much better job vaccinating. They have a much more robust vaccination program than we do. They get their oh, kids vaccinated.
0: Their population is ginormous, huge. Yeah,
1: they're three or four times our size, but they have a huge public health infrastructure delivering vaccines. They know how to do this, and, and they're going to show us how to do it.
0: Yeah. Have we ever in this country had a better public health structure, and it's fallen apart, or was it just nothing that was prioritized?
1: Well, we've not prioritized it for sufficiently for the last few decades. I think early, you know, if you look back at, for example, during um, times where we were immunizing and pushing polio and measles uh, vaccinations, and and more community and public initiatives around things like childhood vaccinations. We did a much better job then, right? I can certainly recall as a kid, you know, hearing about public health messages all the time and seeing vaccine programs coming into the schools to make sure we all got our polio vaccines, for example. We haven't invested in, in that kind of thing for many decades. And we've relied a lot on science. We certainly made incredible investments that have paid off in, in the basic science. I mean, I think the development of the vaccine vaccine is, is a world record. And that really reflects an investment in basic science that's now paid off. But the public health part of it, getting a, the vaccine into, into arms, getting people to wear masks, getting people to understand and follow basic, you know, prevention messages, is, uh, that's really been the problem.
0: Mm-hmm. And freedom of expression and thinking and speech and all those things that our country is known for, it seems also contributes to part of the problem. I don't want to wear a mask. It's against my personal freedom. And then I remember somebody saying, if it wasn't for the mask, I wouldn't have gotten COVID because it stayed behind them. You know, we've heard so many things along the way that I think now that it's vaccine time, some people are just as skeptical about the vaccine and what it could or couldn't do to us, never mind prevent us from getting sick. Because of all of that, I'm going to say, skepticism early on just about mask, no mask, shut the schools, don't shut the schools, all of these things swirling around, no one clear message. So now we are trying to get vaccines that we do have rolled out and into people's arms. And we've heard tons of stories, mRNA and live vaccine and one shot and two shots and people get sick and they don't get sick. And let's just start with the simplest thing, which I still have one question about an mRNA, messenger RNA vaccine, and a live vaccine. Do we have any live vaccines out there right now? Or is it just
1: there are, two, there are a number of them. There are two that are in the pipeline. The, the Johnson and the AstraZeneca vaccines are, are live vaccines and they're being evaluated right now. We should know more about them in the next couple of weeks.
0: And are they in any way preferable? I mean, most of what we've had, chickenpox, measles, those were live vaccines. Yeah. We don't we haven't used an M mm-hmm. yet, have we?
1: No. This is the first time we've we've used it at this scale, but they're working great. So far, the safety profile is really good compared to a lot of other vaccines. So, I, I, I think it's been a, a real benefit uh, to have this new technology. The advantages for the, the live vaccines are there. We have, as you've already pointed out, we have a lot more experience kind of manufacturing those. They can be stored at lower temperatures, so they're easier to distribute, they're less expensive to make. Uh, what we don't know yet is whether they're going to be as effective. In protecting people from getting sick as as the mRNA vaccines, which are extraordinarily good at protecting people from getting sick, Hmm. Um, at least in the first uh, large studies that we've seen. I mean, it's really been much better than I ever expected it to be. I mean, we were talking about approving a vaccine that had 50% protection. This is over 90, 95% protective from, from serious illness. So it's remarkably good, but they're expensive to manufacture, difficult, require a lot of cold you know, chain support. And we're going to figure that out. But in the meantime, if these live virus vectors work as well as the others, then we'll really be in much better shape. But we, we don't have those data yet. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, there are some challenges with some of the live viral vaccines because without getting too far into the weeds, the strategy they're using is something called adenovirus. The adenovirus is a common cold virus for not just humans, but lots of other animals. And the the adenoviruses have been genetically altered over years to make them basically, you know, inert, not cause illness. And so what's done is you insert the the genetic material from another virus inside the adenovirus, and you inject that, and it it, it tricks the body into thinking it's infected with whatever that genetic material represents, in this case, COVID. The challenges are that you know, lots of us have had adenoviruses before in common colds. And so many of us already have immune responses to these adenoviruses. And so when you give a vaccine to somebody that already has an immune response against the vaccine itself, sometimes it doesn't induce enough new immunity to whatever you're, you're trying to target, like COVID. So we don't know whether that's going to be the case yet, but that's something that's got to get figured out. But there are definitely advantages to having a, a cheaper and easier to administer vaccine. Now, but these vaccines like, are still two shots, as well as I understand it, oh, is it.
0: and is that aside from the two shots, would an adenovirus-based injection be like what we get when we get a flu vaccine now?
1: No, the flu vaccine is a different live viral okay. strategy, but uh, it's it's what's called but it's an a patent. live viral. Yeah, 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 most of them. Yeah, the one that you swallow, the one that you you know squirt up your nose, is live. If you get the injection, they're different kinds. That's usually a a, a non-live. But measles is a live vac- vaccine, the shingrix is a live vaccine, you know, we have lots of live vaccines. Mm-hmm.
0: And so I have confusion speaking of shingles, and it also is true for this. Some people get symptoms from the shot that they're getting, the virus that they're getting, and some people don't. I've heard that if you get, like you, you went down, right? you know, a couple of days, you didn't feel well after your second shot for COVID. And I've heard that if you get sick, you get symptomatic. That's good because your immune system is working. And I'm confused. Does that not mean you just got sick with the thing that you're trying not to get sick from?
1: No, I'm not, you're not going to get COVID from a COVID vaccine. You're not going to get shingles from a Shingrix vaccine. I can tell you that the symptoms I had from my second COVID shot well, relatively mild, it took some Tylenol. They weren't actually as bad as the Shingrix. I remember getting the Shingrix vaccine. And that was actually maybe feel worse for two or three days. So it was better than that one for sure.
0: But it's not that we're getting... So why, does, why do we get symptomatic if the body is trying to fight off something?
1: Because we tricked our body into thinking that we've got infected with COVID when we okay. really haven't. So the body's saying, wait a minute, hey, we got to do something about this. You know, when you look at what's happened with A lot of patients with COVID have long symptoms or they might have symptoms, they get over the initial COVID and then they get sick again, end up in the hospital. It's because the the real COVID virus, not the vaccine, but the real COVID virus disrupts the immune system in such a way that it actually, in some cases, can uh, attack ourselves. Our immune system gets out of whack from the COVID infection, to a degree in some situations that it actually causes problems. We haven't seen that with the vaccine. I mean, we see everybody, you know, we see issues with, with all kinds of vaccines, you know, sore arms, headaches, you know, myalgias. Those, those are pretty common, lots of vaccines. But I was actually fine. Listen, I'm happy to, that I had a reaction to the vaccine. If that means that my immune system is a little more revved up to fight off the real COVID, I'd much rather have a sore arm than a, than a tube in my throat. I'll tell you that much.
0: And that's I don't really think there's point.
1: any care, there's no comparison between the side effects of that vaccine and what I've seen this virus do to families and to people.
0: Yeah, and that's something you said on another call about seeing the people who are the, who are the virus victim, but not necessarily the vector. You know, a young person goes out to a party, comes home and infects their grandmother, and then the whole family stuff. You know, grandma's sick, maybe grandma dies. And that was a hard thing to be with all the time. It's one thing for the patients, they're sick. That must be awful. You're used to seeing patients. You've been a doctor for a long time. But this extensive reach into families and communities is different than things we've seen. And maybe HIV AIDS was similar.
1: Well it's not spread the same way. It's a spread from person to person through the air. And so it's it's wiping out whole families and and particularly in um, you know as as you might expect it in communities where people are forced to live in larger groups they don't have enough room or they're they're essential workers they can't afford to, to zoom for work they've got to <laughs> actually go to work and ex, and they're getting exposed at a higher rate they don't have access to healthcare and we've seen entire families get admitted to the hospital and be right down the hall from each other or on different ventilators right out right next to each other and this has happened all over the country all over the world so this is unprecedented we've not seen anything like this as i said in, since the spanish flu
0: which is a great segue because the Spanish flu eventually, I'm going to use this word, disappeared. It didn't before doing damage. And I saw pictures and they had masks. So similar things to what we know to do to protect ourselves and others. But how did the Spanish flu just not become an issue because of vaccinations or herd immunity? Or
1: We didn't have vaccinations at that time. So, so it was herd immunity and masks. The places that were masks shut it down. The places that didn't, didn't. The places that uh, actually shut down schools, restaurants, and churches sooner had much lower rates than those that didn't. I mean, it's not rocket science. This yeah. is the same thing we're dealing with now. But remember, don't forget, we had over 650,000 Americans die of the Spanish flu at a time when we had a much smaller population. Wow. There were more than 50 million infections in the world. It, it, you know, this was... I, Some estimates are that around 1% to 2% of the entire population of the United States died from Spanish flu. Now, we're at about 1 in 500 right now from COVID. We've had 420,000 deaths already, which is more than World War I, Korea and Vietnam together. right? And we're heading in the direction where we could easily see 600, 650,000 Americans die from this, just like we did with Spanish flu. and this is 102 years ago, and we have much better health care right now. We should be doing a better job. And we, we didn't learn the same lessons. We should have, you know, historically, you know, this was predictable. And if you look at the, the different cities in the 1918, 1919, the cities that implemented lockdowns early and sustained them had much lower death rates and much lower rates uh, than those that didn't. Pretty simple. Pretty simple. It's a, it's a respiratory virus. It spreads through the air. If you breathe somebody's air that has it, you're going to get it.
0: I'm thrilled that I haven't even had so much as a cold this winter because I haven't been anywhere. And when I go somewhere, I wear a mask. Wow,
1: that's great. I, thought, I wish more people would do that. In fact, the, uh, the other irony is that there's a lot less regular influenza this year for those that are wearing masks.
0: This idea of herd immunity, we've heard Dr. Fauci talk about it now, maybe more freely than before. And you know, how much you said, you know, we could easily get to 600,000. And there are people that don't want to get the vaccination, even in, you know, in medicine, people that work frontline workers, some do, some don't. I'm not asking for a percentage of how many people have to get vaccinated. I'm just wondering what you see down the road 12 months from now, if let's just say only half the population that can get vaccinated gets vaccinated,
1: then we're not going to be able to open up and go back to normal. Certainly not in the United States. It'll be, and, and we're going to see more mutations, More, you know, this whole issue of variants. The reason we're seeing more variants is because we have more infections okay. in the world. We've had, what, 100 million infections with this, uh, this virus in the world, 20, what, 25 million in the United States, 20, 20, 25 million. Every time a new person gets infected, this virus can mutate. So if we, if we don't stop this now, if we've dragged this out, that's more and more mutations, more and more variants that, are going to, that could be more easily transmitted, they could be more dangerous, they could evade the immune system. The more we let this go on, the harder it's going to be to rein it in.
0: Mm-hmm. One last thing. The idea of long COVID is the way the New York Times refers to it in an article that I read about a, a woman who is now coming out of a long COVID year. I guess I'm gonna ask this, even you touched upon it before, for people that are hesitant or afraid of the vaccine, they don't know what it's gonna do long-term because we don't really have long-term for this particular, the long COVID symptoms could hit anybody. I've heard of young people, football players, middle-aged people, older. What can you say to people to help them get over the hump of the fear of the vaccine versus the possibility that they might end up, you don't know who's gonna be this person or even just to get COVID and not be the one that comes through in a week or 10 days.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we can certainly talk about the protection of people who might be concerned about the long hauler situation, but we don't know whether or not the vaccine is going to do that because, as you've said, we haven't followed people long uh, for that. But one thing I might say is this. Look, if you look at um, the two mRNA vaccines that have gone out so far in the United States, one of them looked at about uh, 40,000 volunteers another looked at a little over 30,000. So roughly 70,000 people either got the vaccine or got a placebo and nobody knew which one it was. The people did that got it didn't know, the doctors who took care of them didn't know. It was all basically blinded and randomized. And what they did is they followed those 70,000 people for a couple months and and asked what was going to happen to them. And I would ask everybody who's concerned to ask themselves the following question. Do you know anybody who ended up in the hospital or died with COVID? Do you know any family members, neighbors, coworkers, other relatives that have gotten sick enough to be in the hospital or died from COVID? And I think the answer for most Americans is gonna be yes, right? Somebody, they know somebody. Mm-hmm. But if you look at those vaccine recipients, for the Moderna vaccine, there were, you know, uh, about 150 people that got COVID in the, va- in the placebo group, and a much smaller group in, in, the, in the vaccine group, the ones that got the vaccine. But if you ask the question for the moderna vaccine, for example, how many people ended up in the hospital or died? And ask, how many of the people that got the vaccine ended up in the hospital or died? The answer is zero. How many who got the placebo? 30. All of the people who died. All the people who were in the hospital who were in that Moderna trial got the placebo, and none of those who got the vaccine ended up getting sick enough to go in the hospital. Now, look, does it mean it's going to be 100% protective for serious illness when you start giving it to millions? Probably not, but that's remarkable. So ask yourself about everybody you know that ended up in the hospital or died, and what could have happened to them if they had gotten that vaccine three months earlier? If based on the data, virtually none of them would have ended up in the hospital or died from this infection. And so I think to me, that's the reason to get the vaccine. And also because there may be long-term consequences, but the most immediate consequences, if you're particularly if you're at high risk, over 65, have underlying health conditions, your risk getting in the hospital and dying is, is real. The, both vaccines are highly effective at preventing that from happening. I want people to be able to survive long enough to worry about the long-term consequences.
0: That's compelling. That's great data to have. Thank you for sharing that. If you have anything that you want to add to this conversation, again, we've talked about, you know, there are so many news stories and articles and all this, but I wanted to hear from somebody that I know is really deep in the trenches with a wealth of experience and years and years and years of doing this to give us your opinion. Is there anything else that you want our listeners to know?
1: Well, I just, uh, I I suppose it's it's not going to be a surprise. What I'd perhaps like to emphasize, and that is that we already know how to stop this epidemic. We have examples from around the world how to do it. We cannot and should not wait for the vaccine to save us for lots of reasons because we have now close to 3,000 Americans dying every day, and that's going to continue. So we, we can't wait for that. And there are things we can do right now. So for those of you that are reluctant to wear a mask because You don't think they work, I can tell you they work. They not only protect you, but they protect others. So if you don't want to wear it for yourself, wear it to protect other people because you can transmit this virus very easily if you're not symptomatic. We've known that for a long time. So please don't wait for the vaccine, wear a mask, protect yourself, protect others, because you care about not just yourself, but your neighbors and your coworkers and your family members. And by the time we need to get the vaccine out there to really slow this down, prevent other family members, neighbors, coworkers from getting sick and end up in the hospital or dying from this. And don't wait for the vaccine to do that.
0: I think that's a great point and one that I think a lot of people, myself included, you know, I felt like, oh, there's hope for 2021, we have the vaccine. But in the meantime, like you said, there are things we can be doing. And it is not a thing it's one of the things that will get us to a place where life can be whatever normal is going to look like. Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Gregory. You take care. That's the end of another episode of the rebellious wellness over 50 podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. If there's anything that you heard or hear when you tune in that you think would benefit a friend, a sister, a mother, Hey, even some guys. Send them my way, would you? And if you've not ever been to the website, rebelliouswellnessover50.com, head on over there. There are resources, things that I don't always get to on the podcast that might help you age better. Be well till next time and stay that way.